So I want to welcome Lily Allen Duenas, an international yoga teacher to the Yoga Teacher Training Podcast. Great to have you here. Welcome, Lily. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, so if you're not familiar with her, she's the host of the Wild Tribe Yoga. Oops. <laughs> Excuse me, the Wild Yoga Tribe Podcast. I said I wasn't going to edit it. So now I got my first thing I have to say. <laughs> I'm actually not going to edit that. <laughs> Uh, but she helps overwhelmed individuals reduce their emotional overload, find balance, breath, and space for self-care. And she is the founder of the Wild Yoga Tribe. She's a meditation guide, holistic health, and wellness coach. So welcome. Thank you for being here today. Thanks, Jeremy. Happy to be here with you. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about the Wild Yoga Tribe podcast. What got you into your yoga practice and to where you are now? Oh, wow. Those are a lot of big questions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, so I'll start with uh, how I got started in yoga. And that was when, um, well, I came to meditation first, actually, when I was 10 years old, a YMCA summer camp, I was going to offered it in the morning. And I, you know, my parents weren't Buddhist, like, no one meditated in my family. It wasn't like I had an in that way. It was just very random. And it just aligned well, I always felt like my mind was so busy, just even as a, you know, eight year old, 10 year old, I knew like, oh, my gosh, my mind is so loud. And uh, I, I just felt so fast in there. So meditation was this opportunity at age 10 for me to really figure out, oh, like there's actually a tool to practice slowing down my mind and just getting to know it better or recognizing habits. So it was really a big gift. And while, of course, I wasn't a dedicated meditative or meditation practice practitioner at age 10, um, I kept it up. I did and uh, bought books on it. I had my dad order it. I think off of eBay, Amazon didn't exist, y'all. Like, let's throw that back to some reality yeah. checks. Um, so that was fun. It was really cool. And then I came to yoga when I was 16. A friend, a soccer teammate of mine said, hey, there's this new thing the gym's offering that my mom goes to. Do you want to try it? And I vividly remember making the joke, oh, well, we go for frozen yogurt after yoga, like making the yogurt yoga joke that I guess was a thing when you're a teenager. Right. don't know what yoga is um and yeah again within you know two minutes of being in the classroom i just felt oh like this is this is so just what my soul was calling for again more quiet more space for the internal journey and internal awareness so practiced regularly uh, in college and entered marketing the field of marketing after graduation was doing marketing management for seven years and then I got burned out before burnout was a thing. And then I spent a year in Shavasana just asking myself, what am I supposed to do with my life? What, what am I called to do? What, what is this? And it was honestly, I wanted to just make a decision, change my life immediately. But I spent a year, a whole year in Shavasana every day asking myself and waiting for that quiet inner voice to answer me. And so it finally did. And it said, be a yoga teacher. You silly girl is probably what it's been trying to tell me for a while, but it was great to be to finally hear that so loud and resonate. And within, you know, two weeks, I had a month sabbatical approved from work. I had a plane ticket to Nepal. I'd submitted my deposit at Nepal Yoga Home for my 200 hours. And uh, there you have it. I went there and then within two days was like, oh, this is what I need to do with my life. Came back, packed everything up and then spent five years teaching and traveling and learning abroad, doing a lot of more certifications as well. And then along the way, you started the podcast as well. Yeah, that you asked me very big questions. I know I monologued there for a solid Huge. four minutes, Jeremy. I had to give you a break. <laughs> but, 
Yeah, the Wild Yoga Tribe. I started that in 2017. Um, the, it's the, a website. It's a community. It's uh, all over social media, just kind of a tribe of people coming together from around the world who want to learn about yoga, talk about yoga, um, understand different methodologies and philosophies or how cultural different cultures are impacted by yoga. And there's just so much to unpack. And so when I was traveling, I was blogging, I was writing about this, I was taking short videos and YouTubes. And then, you know, pandemic hit and things weren't as open and and available and there wasn't as many teachers to meet with in person. So that's when it became the podcast. That's when um, June 2021, I said, you know, I just can't stop having these conversations and I want to share them. I want other people to be able to tap into this amazing knowledge these teachers have to share. So I love it. I love that I get to have these conversations with incredible teachers from every corner of the globe. Oh, and for those um, of our dear listeners who haven't heard of the Wild Yoga Tribe podcast, it comes out every Friday and it's one interview a week uh, with one yoga teacher from a different country around the world. So I'm about 72 episodes in. So that's 72 different countries. <laughs> wow. That's really cool. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Cool. Yeah. So we did cover a lot there. I just kind of wanted to get the overview. Uh, this is actually our first time meeting. So I just like to, to know a little more about your story. And then, yeah, the listeners as well kind of go on the journey with me. Uh, so really cool. Uh, you, that, what stood out to me there is that you started, your first yoga class was actually at a gym. Is that, did I hear that right? Bingo. Yeah. And that was actually me too. Like, I don't think I would have gotten to here if it wasn't for that gym offering that class. I would have found it eventually, but it definitely accelerated things because I was comfortable at the gym, but to go to a yoga class seemed you know, similar. I was in my early twenties and kind of like, you know, is this for me? Is this, what is this, you know, kind of judging it or not really open-minded to it actually at that time of like, kind of, I'm not sure exactly what this is, but then I actually did it. And it was so profound and it's like this moving meditation. And it's like, this is something I want to be doing regularly. So I talked to a lot of people who get into the very spiritual side of things and they maybe feel like weird about doing yoga at a gym or like finding yoga at a gym or starting there but it's actually not that uncommon and uh you eventually did get into all like the spiritual esoteric deeper parts of yoga too but do you think you would have got there found up there eventually or did the yoga at the gym kind of help accelerate and make it feel comfortable for you to get into it well, I wasn't a gym goer at 16. Right. I was a soccer <laughs> player, a tennis player. Um, so it was just kind of random that my friend said, you know, I go with my mom to the gym to swim sometimes. Basically, do you want to try this new thing? And I did grow up in Northern California in Sonoma County. And I was really lucky that this this one gym, like it was, it looked like a yoga shala. Like it was a beautiful yoga space. Um, they had you know, candles and incense. And she was talking about, I mean, this was granted like decades ago. So this is hard, <laughs> but she was, you know, she was teaching not a gym, hot flow, sweaty Pilates blend. Like it was a, a, a yoga class. So like kind of felt more authentic to the roots now that with my hindsight, I can see she was, was honoring traditions and doing that. And I do think, as you said, Jeremy, it's awesome. We both came that way. People all over the entire world come to yoga that way too. And I think I, I know yoga teachers, can struggle with that. Oh, it's gym yoga instead of yoga studio, you know, shala yoga, but it's a gateway. No matter if it is that hot Pilates blended mix of yoga, 
that still counts as yoga in a way, right? I understand that some of the tradition and the history, the lineage, that can get a little lost in translation. But if we're still kind of introducing people, that's a gateway. And it's just planting the seeds. You never know, as you said, when later in life, you'll come back and those seeds will sprout and then you'll find uh, your place and your space again. But it is a little, at the, on the flip side, Jeremy, right? Isn't it a little scary when somebody tries, we'll say something for the very first time and they don't like it. They're like, oh, nope, that's not for me, not for me. Um, and that's hard because if you try like one apple and you say, oh, I don't, I don't like fruit. It's like, oh, but you didn't even try strawberry or you didn't try banana or you, you know, there's so many types of yoga and so many types of teachers and energy that teachers bring. So that's why I, I would like to highlight that as well for your listeners too, that, I mean, if you have a student that says they don't like yoga, just if you don't like an apple, doesn't mean they don't like strawberry. Uh, but I agree. I do think I would have come to yoga later in college. Um, it was offered at um, the fitness centers as well that were associated with my university. And I was like kitty corner to the fitness center. So I was there all the time when I saw yoga was offered in the evenings, I was going you know, four or five days a week. So maybe that that class activated it in me to look for it in college, but I'm not sure. I think it would have somehow, some way, right? That's how the universe worked. It would have come in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think some newer teachers maybe have hesitancy about taking opportunities to teach at gyms or if they, uh, fitness centers or things like that. But I always think of it, like you said, it's like a gateway, like people will come there and they'll resonate with you and you can bring in the spirituality and the esoteric parts, the deeper parts of the practice. Even at a gym setting, it's like there's weights and other stuff going on on the other side of the room or something. You can still bring in the spirituality and the history and the lineage of yoga and the heart of it uh, in all settings. And I think that's like one of the big focuses I've had on my path is like bringing yoga to all different settings, and all different populations. And I think that's what I love about what you're doing too, of bringing international teachers and different perspectives and things like that. And I imagine those teachers are also teaching in, in all sorts of circumstances as well around the world, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're teaching at middle schools or they're teaching in hospitals or I, I mean, just it's amazing if you see some of the photos of the teachers teaching in the jungle, you know, on tarps, they've just laid a tarp down. It is so amazing, amazing. And in Africa, I think it was in Uganda, the yoga teacher said that there's so many tribal languages. And so he'll have people come to class and he doesn't share a language with them. And so it's amazing that while they, I mean, maybe there's a few words that kind of cross over, they're uh, observing the movement and that's how they're able to practice together. And having that multilingual situation happen is so incredible to have people from different tribes coming together, different communities. And when I've taught abroad, that's certainly been the case for me too. I've had people who don't speak a word of English coming to my classes and I will have to use a whooshing sensation to indicate extension or, you know, you're using these, these sounds, I think, to indicate length and breadth and you know, and that's what they're watching and following and hearing that rhythm. It's it's amazing experience to teach to someone who doesn't share a language. Wow. I've never done that. But one of my mentors actually, she said she learned yoga initially that way in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Her teacher did not speak English, just showed her and then she would copy it. Uh, and it's amazing like that 
can be so effective and profound. And I, but I've actually, never, that's like one of the, <laughs> I've taught in like every circumstance, but I never even thought about that one. That's really interesting. Yeah. I know there's a new thing, which I haven't tried. Speaking of things we haven't done <laughs> is blindfold yoga, where right. um, all of your students will be blindfolded. Maybe perhaps I think the teacher is not, <laughs> but, um, and then guiding a sequence with the eyes closed and, and everyone can't see in the, in the room. That's interesting to me. I, I would like to try that, but I also know that's not accessible. That's not necessarily trauma-informed for people who aren't comfortable not being able to see. Um, and that's, you would need to have a level of understanding. So I think if, if everybody says yes to that experience and that's something to cultivate and have a container for, I'm interested. But I do acknowledge you can't just kind of throw that to a random group of humans and say, guess what we're doing today? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I'm always big on that too. Of like, if you're teaching a Hatha flow at noon, teach a Hatha flow and don't like say, oh, suddenly today, everyone, everyone's get a partner. We're doing partner yoga today. It's like, hold on. You know, some people might get triggered, uncomfortable, and that didn't prepare for that. Uh, but yeah, blindfold is like the next level of that. Isn't Put it? Put a blindfold on. Yeah, it is a little next level, but I think it would be a, that internal practice even more. You know, you're yes, not getting totally. distracted by anyone in the room. You're having to really tune into the ear because if you're demonstrating, if the teacher is demonstrating in the front, it can be so easy to be distracted by that shape. And it's, I don't know. I think there is great. There's I'm interested. You know, it's piqued yeah. my interest. <laughs> totally. It's like a deep pratyahara practice. It's total sense withdrawal and just being in your body and. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, thing to explore. I did teach a class once where they always wanted the lights very, very low and like, no, it was pretty dark. And then your eyes adjust and you get comfortable in the dark. Um, it's kind of like those restaurants where you're like dining in the dark. I haven't done that either, but uh, just focus on the sense of the food, you know. I think there's something there. There's an opportunity there for people who are willing to do that kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. So what is really interesting? What else is really interesting in your practice or your studies or your teaching right now? Like what's the thing like you're most like inspired or engaged about? Interesting question. Um, hmm. So I started, I just moved back to the U.S. here. Uh, I moved to Des Moines, Iowa, the capital. Uh, it's five hours south of Chicago. We're not in the middle of nowhere. It's a big urban city. I love it. But I started teaching here at a studio that has an amazing, strong community of hundreds of people who go. And even in Des Moines, there's three locations. So it's just a very well-developed studio. I think it's been here for 11 years or nine years, but anyway, huge community. And I've started teaching yin classes there. And so I think what has been a real gift for me uh, and what's been really interesting in my practice as a teacher is now that I'm, I have a consistent community. I'm not teaching at a, a hotel, a resort um, where people are coming and going and coming and going, um, which has its own challenges. And now I get to form these relationships with my students and see them week after week and um, cultivating. I'm really focusing on theming, especially with yin. I think it's so important to have a theme that you're, maybe your whole theme in the class is Pratyahara, as you said, or uh, Svadihaya, self-study. That was my theme two weeks ago. This week was loving and listening, listening to yourself, listening to your heart speak. Um, so I think having themes is something I'm working on, um, but really weaving that through the whole practice, making that such a central focus in the yin practice. 
Um, and as a student, I think that, yeah, it's, it's probably spotty high. It's probably self-study. I'm trying to be so observant and mindful and slow and intentional with uh, what I am what I'm doing, what I'm saying. And then also my one of my teachers in India at Yoga Vedya Gurukul and Nasik, um, he said that he was saying how Swadihaya, when you're thinking about self-study, it's like you should also think about who you admire. And he his example is Lord Krishna. So if you have someone you really, really admire and respect, or you know, this you're devoted to a deity, and what about that? person or what about that deity do you really admire and makes you love them so much and how can you honor that and embody that in your own energy and so that's part of the self-study as well so i think i'm becoming more more mindful of what i'm admiring in others and observing and uh, honoring and how can i bring that in myself i love that practice that's something i did uh, many years ago, but I kind of forgot about it. And now I'm inspired to do it again. Uh, uh, when I was just beginning to be into really into yoga, I wasn't trained yet. I wasn't sure I wanted to be a teacher, but I just started writing down like all the people I knew that I admired or respected. And then what were all the qualities that I admired about them? It was like five to 10 people. And then to take their names off of it and like, how can I embody those things? How can I be those things now? and not put it i project it onto them but now put it back onto myself and embody those i found that to be extremely powerful and i'm really glad you reminded me of that and i would never have really thought of that as a svadhyaya practice but it is like that's a great way to think of it um so that's that's a great exercise like anybody listening could explore too as well like you're saying and I think that's something you mentioned when we were DMing about things that you like to share like short little practices and yogic practices and things like that for people as well. Um, and that is something that you, uh, is that something you weave into your classes or something you're doing more online? Or can you tell us more about like these kind of short um, yogic practices that you you share? Yeah, so I'm not sharing them in my class because usually the classes are 45 minutes to an hour or actually they're all an hour, but there's sometimes the studio does these um, shorter classes, but I'm not teaching those. Yeah. Um, so with the hour long classes, it's not necessary because these little one minute, three minute, five minute practices are meant to just deregulate your nervous system. And during a yoga practice that happens naturally, that breath, that movement, that slowness, that repetition, all these things, um, they're naturally helping you de-stress and activate that uh, parasympathetic nervous system to be more in that state of rest and digest and more opportunistic immune functions as well, which are great immune system, memory, reproduction, all the good stuff. Yeah. So with the three to five, I share it on social media, wild yoga tribe, everywhere you want, um, as well as on podcasts. It's one of my favorite things to talk about when I get to have conversations with awesome people like Jeremy <laughs> is I just, I love sharing something actually useful because sometimes you listen to podcast episode and you're like oh okay like cool you know thumbs up <laughs> but is there anything that you can actually try and actually can can take away from that so that's why these i think one three five minute practices are great and i know so many of your listeners are yoga teachers so i'm sure they have a toolbox full of them but uh if they're interested i'm happy to share one if you think they need more <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Anything you feel inspired to share, uh, I'd love to hear. Okay. 
Yeah. So what will actually deregulate the nervous system to um, elicit that parasympathetic response? So of course, like we'll just go over some basic ones that I'm sure your, your teachers are well familiar with is those safe inversions, getting your head below the heart. That is an amazing way to slow down the heartbeat and the breath. Uh, deep breathing, especially with the emphasis on the exhale. And this is something I didn't know for a long time was that each exhale actually slows down the heartbeat just a, a little bit. And on each inhale, the heartbeat speeds up just a little bit. Like it's fractional, mm -hmm. like infinitesimal, but it, it's enough that it, the exhale actually slowing us down. Repetitive movements like sun salutations or dynamic asanas also are great calming sounds, mantras, om, silence is also amazing for the nervous system. And then being aware of what comes in through the senses, so that sensory input. So those are just some of the, you know, attempts. And any of these attempts alone can actually trigger the parasympathetic in a positive way. So even if you're trying it and, you're, and your student's like, ah, I felt silly, I was listening to a mantra and trying to chant and like, no, you actually succeeded. I'm sure they succeeded because it can still elicit. Mm -hmm. So one for your yoga teachers to try is maybe um, they cross their hands over their heart, make a little Garuda mudra. So it looks kind of like a, um, a bird wing. Your thumbs are crossed. Your right hand, my right hand's usually underneath, but I'm sure that's, you know, you can make all the arguments you want about the Ida and the Pingala. Uh, but I, I like to tap and exhale on one side. So you're just tapping, we'll say the left first, just tap, tap, exhale, inhale, tap the other side. Exhale, tap the opposite side. Inhale, tap the other twice. So it's two taps, inhale, two taps as you exhale and you're alternating left to right, left to right. And so of course, Ida Pingala, you can do what you want with left versus right. But I think just for starters, just doing that, we'll say for one minute, it's this amazing way of, of touching the self, of nourishing the self. And these tapping methods have been proven scientifically, neuroscience, like everyone's talking about tapping, right? And all the different ways, shape and form. But this is just such a way of, um, if you're thinking about freezing or running or fighting, it's like, this is a way of like hugging the self, holding the self. And then these taps can kind of help us get out of our mind back into the body, left side, right side, activating all the energy. Wow. And if you are feeling super angry and like, ah, that's not enough for me. I have my fight drive is going crazy. Go against a wall and push the wall away from mm -hmm. you. Get that aggression out. Just push it out. And then maybe you can hang in like a modified downward dog on the wall or a nice wall hang to get a good stretched on the back of your body. But if you're feeling like that's not what you need, you needed something more forceful, push a wall away from you. It's great to just like get out adrenaline and then feel that feeling of strength feels really great. Wow. These are great. I've never heard of either of these exercises actually. So thank you for sharing these. Yay. Yeah. Very cool. And they feel like I was doing the breathing as you were guiding it and I could quickly feel the shift of like a little more relaxed, a little less tension. It's powerful. And even just like that, maybe like 40 seconds I was doing it. I could feel it. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. That's awesome. Yeah. And then the pushing away. Uh, one thing one of my teachers has taught, uh, like doing a bridge pose and like you grab the sides of the mat with your hands. You got to have a, a, a high quality mat, but you try to like tear it apart with your hands, but you know, the mat's not going to move. And that kind of pulls that aggression 
through the muscles out of the body pushing into a wall is great i haven't really thought of that either it's like it's something that you're not going to damage anything <laughs> it's a sh very strong resistance you can just push all your energy through it i love that yeah i love seeing because you know so many yoga poses poses jeremy are named after animals right i, I bet all of your <laughs> yoga teachers <laughs> have, have realized that you know cow face lizard uh i mean yeah. the list goes cat cow right it goes on and on and on but if you watch an animal we'll just say a dog because i think most of us have seen a dog before yeah. if a dog gets really stressed out and is in a stressful environment the first thing it does when it is de-stressing is it shakes the whole body shakes mm -hmm. um and that's also an amazing and then it usually kind of shakes looks at you checks in maybe it stretches but that shake is also a really great way for us as mammals to de-stress as well. If you just stand up, just shake out a little bit and then push against a wall or, yeah. and then do a tapping, just the act of shaking is just, I mean, and I don't mean it. Um, I mean, just try to stand up and just kind of jiggle around the body. I don't mean shake, just like shake your head. Yes or no. And move your arms in a little jig. <laughs> just try to shake it out pretty organically. Uh, 15 seconds. That's all it takes sometimes to just start the body's recognition. Ah, okay. I can let go of a little of that tension. Absolutely. Yeah. That is such a natural response or a shiver response. Or if cats are in a traumatic experience in the wild, they'll go and, and curl up and purr as a self-soothing technique. Yeah. But like it's some sort of like vibration or movement or shaking kind of energy uh, is so good for releasing stored energy in the nervous system. Mm. It's potential energy that's like not moving. Yeah. Yeah, I think our humming is our version of purring, like mm, bromery. Yeah. Mm, yes. type. Yeah. So if you need to purr and curl up, <laughs> go for it with bromery, y'all. Yes. And then dancing, of course, like dancing is a great way to, you know, get all that mm. movement in as well. Um, yeah. It's just hard when people don't feel like they have the five minutes. Right. Like, I think that there's such a common response or common sentiment that's expressed as, I don't have five minutes. I don't even have time to eat lunch. I I, I have a, someone I know in my life who her huge tagline in life is and on LinkedIn too. I'm an aspiring lunch eater. And I feel like that says so much is it like what a hard worker and I admire her greatly. She is someone I definitely admire and respect immensely. But to, to feel like you never have time to nourish your body with food. And that's something that you put out in the world and say that about this, the self too. It's like, Oh, like my heart hurts a little bit, but that's the, that's the mantra you have. That is intense. That is an intense thing to put in your bio. And I know she's probably just like, Oh, I'm just being funny. And, but it's such an intense thing to really put in your energy field and say that and affirm that. And it just becomes more and more true and more affirming the more things you do around it. It's like, I don't have time, don't have enough energy, can't do this, can't do that. And then the society supports that. It's like the more you're Oh, doing, it loves it. Oh my gosh. Society wants you to work every second of the day and then get sick and have to go to hospitals and pay. I mean, the system, the system thrives when you are not well and you have no time. And Netflix has come out very vocally, verbally on the books, has said their biggest competitor, Jeremy, any guess? right now who's Netflix's <laughs> biggest competitor oh wow uh I'd say Instagram I don't know sleep 
Sleep. Oh yeah. I saw that. Yes. Yes. They're, they're all of their, you know, I'm not gonna say all, but a lot of their, um, kind of the people who are trying to figure out how to make it more addictive, how to make it more, more time, more, all that. They're really thinking, how do I make you not want to go to sleep and rest? Yeah. That's the, that's their hugest, biggest goal. I, how do I prevent you from going to sleep? And if that's these huge behemoth companies are just, of course, vying for our attention, we're in an attention economy. Yeah. But if that's the case, no one wants us to sleep. No one wants us to have five minutes. They don't want us to be well and healthy and balanced. And uh, I don't mean to get a little dark yes. and gloomy, but <laughs> we're all good with yoga. Yay, yoga. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about, like the study one of my mentors told me about, I think it was... Uh, lab mice in this experiment basically they would have three of them one of them would experience a traumatic situation and then they would come back to the other two and then see like how the um the group impacts the individual so if the other two mice were like also experienced the trauma and they all meet back together and they've all experienced trauma and they're all just spun out they all just keep spinning out and they all just keep going crazy and like nobody's there to help regulate um but if the one goes away experiences the trauma comes back the other two have been regulated and they're totally relaxed that third one also starts to co-regulate and because of the seeing the regulation in others they start to calm down and i think that is like one of the great gifts that yoga teachers and people who do this kind of work get to offer to society it's like people come into our space, our studios, our classes, all spun out and like freaked out about what's going on in the world and their life and their work. And then you're there to hold this like loving, calm presence. And they can kind of attune to that in the way like grandfather clocks, if they're all in the same room, eventually get in the same rhythm and the same pace. Like a yoga class is that same thing. We all kind of attune to the teacher. Uh, so for teachers, it's so important to be doing these regulate, regulating practices and show up to class regulated and grounded uh, so your students can attune to you. But the outside world, outside of yoga class, most people are attuning to the news, the media, stress, fear, anxiety. Social right? media. Yeah, mm -hmm. social media. So the prettiest picture, the perfect curated pictures and funny posts. And, you know, it's just nobody can live up to that all the time. And then you're like, oh, who am I? I'm not good enough. And all these, it's just such an interesting world we live in where it's like yoga has become uh, into the mainstream, like to kind of match all that and yogic practices and these kind of things uh, are like more needed than ever. And now, fortunately, like more accessible, more popular than ever too, to help kind of have an alternative to the, the sick care system and the stress cycle that everybody's kind of spinning through. Jeremy, that was so beautiful. I'm so glad you shared that. I'm so glad I heard you say that too. Like, thank you for saying that and uh, sharing those examples with the mice as well. I mean, so sad that we had to put mice through trauma. Like let's acknowledge that yes. life was impacted negatively for our yes. benefit of this study. But I do think also I would love to share that we create this space and this container in a yoga studio and in a class to have that loving kind um, co-regulation, as you said, but also you have that opportunity as a yoga teacher to do that in line at the coffee shop Oh yeah. or in, yeah. I mean, at, with a waitress um, at a, at a restaurant, Ch look someone in the eye, check in with them. How are you today? And I'm good. Like, yeah. Did you have a nice Monday? Anything happened today? You know, 
I just, you have the opportunity to still help people co-regulate in any and all circumstance and be that, be that little light and be that little force of, of good, or, you know, of good intent, um, everywhere you go. Right. Yeah. I think that is one of the great gifts of yogic practice and then like really living the practice. And one of the, I'll say one of my biggest challenges, and I'm curious what you have to say about this is like in interpersonal relationship, like in intimate partnership, uh, I have all these tools as a yoga practitioner, as a teacher, so much self-awareness, so much internal work, but in some ways that doesn't always translate to interpersonal work and like understanding what to say to a partner or how to navigate a conflict or how to navigate totally relational issues, right? We get this practice of yoga from these people who went off as ascetics into caves and like disowned their family in a way and totally went out and did their own thing. And we are still doing a lot of those same practices, very internal. So how do we translate into relational skills and like not just going within when I'm in a difficult conversation or I feel triggered, my partner feels triggered or, you know, how do you apply these things to relational skills? That's a great question. Um, so of course, I think for, in terms of yoga tradition, ahimsa is, is the one that an automatically, of course, comes up. And it's such a beautiful phrase and a beautiful, um, I don't mean phrase, sorry, it's a, it's a beautiful offering, a, a word that I hope your students and teachers come back to again and again, because it doesn't just mean nonviolence in the terms of I'm not going to, you know, yell at someone or hit someone. It doesn't mean nonviolence just in the sense of I'm not going to harm living beings and eating meat and um, smushing the spider that crawls in my room. It doesn't just mean that. And it doesn't just mean also ahimsa in our mind. Are we speaking to ourselves with compassion and with love? And are we speaking to others that way? And it's just there's so many layers that you can go deeper and deeper with ahimsa about not causing harm to yourself or to others. But you, yoga also means huge, which means union, to unite. And so for me, when it comes to this interpersonal realm, I have absolutely no problem coming out and saying, I love using Western psychology or Eastern philosophy. I, I read Pema Troden. I know you also are a huge fan of yeah. her, her beautiful guidance and light. Uh, Titnat Han has gorgeous offerings about what to do in the space and when you encounter someone with difficulty or when you're having a hard conversation with uh, a lover, a partner, a friend. It just, it the darling, you're mm -hmm. suffering. I see you're suffering. I don't want you to suffer. How can I help you? Mm -hmm. Oh, those words. I just yes, like there's amazing teachers in the West and the East and the whole world that have these tools to offer us. And so while I'm not necessarily going to gather them myself from the Bhagavad Gita, I haven't found anything quite in there that would necessarily uh, help me when I'm triggered with my partner. Right. Uh, but West, I do talk therapy. I love cognitive behavioral therapy. I love reading uh, authors like John and Julie Gottman. Mm -hmm. They're, yeah, yeah, they're great. They're love um, they are psychologists who focus on love and relationships and have some great books out there. Um, Harriet Lerner, she wrote The Dance of Anger about how anger has manifested in women um, and how culture has responded to that and how, do, as a woman, do you process anger? I mean, there's so many amazing resources out there all over. And I think that's how you kind of have to gather 
everything that you need to respond better, I think, and be better um, externally as right, well as right. internally. Yeah, I think that's a big area to grow in the realm of yoga practice and yoga teachings. I think there's, like you say, like in the source text, there's really no mention about interpersonal relational skills. And that's that's been a challenge for me sometimes where it's like I have all these, oh, I can go away and meditate and get clear and regulate and do great. Um, but in the moment, in relational issues, like it can be not helpful. Like I gotta stay present, stay in connection into this uncomfortable thing and have these conversations. And yeah, all those teachers you mentioned are incredibly helpful. Like Gottman Institute is an incredible, great research, like the five to one rule, like five positive negative or positive interactions to every one negative interaction is like a marker of longevity and relationship. And, you know, these are all things I practice too and like apply. Um, and I'm not, you know, not the worst in the world. Also just not perfect and, you know, always learning and growing as well. So I just love that conversation of hearing like, you know, your perspective and it is validating and helpful to hear that of like how you, merge the two and like the connection between inner work and then relational work as well. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Always more to learn. Always yeah. we right are facing our ourselves in the mirror and the mirror is covered with dirt. And just every day we're just trying to get the mirror just slightly, slightly more clean. So we could yeah. see our true selves, our true nature with more honesty and clarity and it's a, I, I don't know when my mirror will be clean, <laughs> but uh, it's an ongoing practice. And I think the tool that has I working, I'm working on the absolute hardest is self-compassion, mm. having that awareness and that compassion of self saying, Hey, I'm not perfect. As you said, I I'm going to make a million mistakes, but um, what is that? What is that phrase? It's something about the, if the arrow is shot once, do not shoot the arrow twice at yourself, something like that. Or because yeah. we make ourselves suffer over and over again when we bring up uh, something we've done wrong and yeah. we just want to beat ourselves over and over. It's like being shot with 50 arrows where really we only needed just to be, sh it was just one arrow. Right. And if you, you know, can feel that arrow and, and acknowledge that and just hand on heart, acknowledge that and then have forgiveness for yourself. Because I find it's easier to forgive others and find compassion for them. I'm like, oh, gosh, they're probably having a horrible day. They probably have a headache. Who knows? What, their mom might be sick. I don't know what's going on there. I mean, of course, they were snappy or rude. No problem. But if I have a moment of where my I'm not as mindful and I say something I, I, I don't quite mean or, like, oh, that was too rude or short, then, yeah, I, I like to think about it for the next two hours. <laughs> <But> <laughs> that's my, my goal, my, what I'm working on. Right, right. Yeah. And I always come back to like the origins of the Yoga Sutra 1.2. Yoga is the quieting of the mind, the stilling of the fluctuations. And in that, we get to come back to our true self and our awareness and know that the other person also can do that and has that true self. And we have these layers in between of our conditioning, our past, our human experience. And, and uh, it's just to always remember like, we can kind of step back and observe all of that. I like the Alan Watts quotes uh, where he talks about how he's kind of look at people when they're really in their stuff and just kind of see into their eyes, into their soul. It's like, I see you, Shiva. <laughs> it's like, hello. <laughs> 
That's awesome. I haven't heard that one before. I, Alan Watts is someone I've, I've read some quotes from too, but it's always been a goal of mine. And I feel like I've downloaded it before and never got to it, but I've been wanting to listen to some of his lectures. I've been feeling very okay. called to that. Yeah, that was like the first teacher I really got into. And I just found every recording I could of his back when it was hard to find that stuff. And like, you couldn't buy yeah, it before anymore. YouTube, right? Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. It? I, I have an honest to goodness, like handwritten letter from a friend that wrote, Oh, have you heard of the YouTube? It's like, <laughs> it just came out. Like, <laughs> it was so cute. <laughs> yeah. And it was just like cat videos and <laughs> random little videos. Uh, yeah, that was like in the BitTorrent days when it's like, you just couldn't find these things anywhere. It's like old lectures somebody recorded on their tape live in the 70s and stuff. Uh, so now it's really easy, though. You can find a million YouTube videos, Alan Watts. And uh, for whatever reason, though, he just really stuck out. And it was the first person I found like that. And But now there's so many and so many people doing similar things. But his stuff is great. It's really powerful. Amazing. Yeah, I think of his a lot of his quotes a lot. Um, but that one always stands out. Just like seeing the, the twinkle in someone's eye, like the, the God within them, even when they don't look like... <laughs> But they also, when you look at those depictions, like Shiva's depicted as, as like insane sometimes with like a beheaded person and like everything standing on a guy and all this. Um, so it's all that is divine, all that is human too. It's like, it's not just uh, the holy, pure, innocent part of us, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ganesha has an elephant head because his father was mad and cut off his head and <laughs> mom was so sad, sewed it back on, you know, like that's, that's part of the story. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, I want to start to wrap up today. It's been really great to talk to you and it's really fun. Uh, so where can people find out more about what you're up to and connect with you? Yeah, hang out with me, guys. Let's become friends. <laughs> uh, so uh, you can find me on wildyogatribe.com or wildyogatribe at gmail.com or on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, wherever you want to hang out. I'm there at Wild Yoga Tribe. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, it is a tribe. It's a community. It's not yoga with Lily. That is not my <laughs> and what I wanted to name my brand. I, I That's not what I wanted to have, that energy. I want it to be just this family and this community of people coming together from all over, having conversation, learning from each other and growing together. And so if you're even just like a little bit curious about yoga, or if you ever wanted to have even a yoga retreat in Peru or Mexico or Thailand, like tune in, get to know the place. And you, these people are amazing. It's a yoga teacher. I, I feel like your community knows this too. They're open. They're accepting, they're curious, and they're happy to connect. So if you do have a question about hosting or treat, visiting, um, you're going to Italy, you don't know where to, what city to even go to. My, my Michaela Maltoni from Italy will happily answer your questions. Or Azerbaijan, do you randomly have a business trip there? Have a yoga studio for you to go to with Gafar. So wow. it's amazing. I really recommend it. If, you, if you're curious at all, interested, yeah, Wild Yoga Tribe, please join, please hang out. Whoa, that's really cool. I never thought of this. So yeah, people who are interested in leading retreats or going to these destination places, rather than just like finding some local guide or something, you could find a yoga teacher who knows like the things you might be looking for and answer the questions you like, might have uh, as a resource as part of this community. This is really cool. Absolutely. And it, just to be able to support 
another yoga teacher and support that community? I mean, maybe it's just a question. I'm, I'm not speaking about hiring them to do anything, right. but it, it just, I think this is the way to do it. If you're interested in it, I highly recommend it. They're great people. I have talked to them all so I can vouch. <laughs> right. I love that. Awesome. So thank you so much, Lily. Thanks for meeting today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and uh, hopefully get to talk again soon. Thanks, Jeremy. It's been a joy.